so, amen. Let, let's continue our study of Romans. Uh, we've, uh, we're making progress. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you haven't enjoyed it, you can complain to all the people that recommended we do Romans. Uh, it is confronting, the first three chapters of Romans. And we'll, we'll kind of summarize it today. Uh, and then we'll begin to look at kind of the next segment of Paul's thought. Amen? Uh, so we'll look here at those two things. The power of sin uh, with kind of a side point about pride. Uh, and then we'll look at the greater power of the Son. Amen? So Romans 3, uh, hopefully you brought your Bible. We'll, we'll pick up there in, uh, in verse 9. Oh, Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentile alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one Righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In a way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires faith? No, because of the law, oh, sorry, the law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith? Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Amen. Great, great passage. Let's have a prayer. And we'll look at some points from this. Our Father, we, uh, we come to you, you know, obviously... Uh, wanting your help, God. We, we know that, that your word uh, is the power that, that, that can change us. That is your breath that, that, that can dwell within us, God, and change our heart and our mind, God. We pray that you help us, God. Do you open up the eyes of our hearts? You open up our minds, God. You help us to understand uh, to, you know, what, what, what we need to grasp today and what we need to, to walk away with, God, so that we can seek you. And follow you, Father. We, we pray that your spirit can, can move among us, God. That it can convict us, God. 
You can help us to see ourselves with, with the clarity that comes only from, from you and you alone, God. And we pray, God, that, that as, we, as we look at this word, God, that, that we can you know, fix our eyes on your son like never before, God. Uh, help us in this, God. Grant us a humility uh, and much grace and much forgiveness as we desperately need it. In Christ's name we pray. And similar Amen. to the ones we looked at in the last couple of weeks, there is way too much in there to, to possibly unpack uh, in, in, in the two hours that we're going to spend. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Half an hour. Half an hour. Amen. Uh, let me put my watch up just in case, my phone. All right, and so let's look at a few things here. You know, Paul, Paul starts with, you know, th- this, this idea of the power of sin. You know, he says there in verse 9, what should we conclude then? And again, it's a summary statement. Uh, and he's even just finished a section that, you know, if you look at the, the end of, uh, of, of chapter, th- or the beginning of chapter 3, which we didn't read, but we read last week, you know, he even does a Q&A section of, okay, well, if Jews... Uh, are condemned just as Gentiles, many non-Jews are condemned, and what's the benefit of being, uh, you know, a, a Jew, right? Uh, you know, and that's what he means by, do we have any advantage? And he's basically saying, in terms of a meritous approach to, knowing, to, to, to salvation, he says, no, there is no advantage. Right? No advantage. For we have already made the charge, and that's chapters 1, two, one, one and 2, and, and the part of 3 that we're up to here, that, that, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And, and I've spoken with many of you over the last couple of weeks as we've looked at these, you know, a couple of lessons from chapter one, a couple of lessons from chapter two, uh, you know, and, and there's, if you read chapters one and two with any level of humility, there's no way you, you feel like I'm blameless. It's impossible, right? And that's what, essentially what Paul is saying. Look, we need to understand that we are all under the power of sin. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew, if you were born religious, if you've grown up religious, if you attended church your whole life, doesn't matter. Right? Doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, if you you know, still an atheist, you know, unsure about God, agnostic, whatever you want to label yourself. Uh, if your belief is that there is nothing to believe in, that is a belief, you know, but but nonetheless you're just like the religious and that you know what? You're under the power of sin. Right? And 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 we're all in the same boat essentially is what Paul is saying. Uh, and then he goes on this, uh, this rant here in 10 to 18, you know, and it's a, it's a very powerful little passage of, of, of scriptures here, and they're all up there for us. And it's a, it's a common uh, tool that rabbis in Paul's day would use, right? And it's called uh, uh, stringing pearls, okay? You know, because Paul is taking lots of different passages from the Old Testament, as you can see, Ecclesiastes, several from Psalms, uh, as well as Isaiah and even Proverbs. He's taken together all these, you know, seven different passages of Scripture, and he's strung them all together, and they all have the same common message behind them, right? And that message being that, hey, we're all lost, right? None of us are good enough in the eyes of God, right? All of us are under the, the, the power of sin. All of us fall short, you know, and it's a lot of them are from the Psalms, and like I said, Ecclesiastes as well, and Proverbs, and even Isaiah. And, and so they're, there's po- they're, they're poetic, right? I mean, it even reads very nicely. But then you examine the content, and you think, oh, man, there's some hard concepts in there, right? Uh, you know, and Paul has a lot to say, again, about this idea of the power of sin. You know, we, we underestimate sin. I think that's a reality. We think sin is not as bad as it's portrayed to be. Right? God has a different viewpoint, you know. And here, even in those seven passages that, that Paul strings together, we see a couple things, right? We, you know, he points out the ungodliness of sin, the idea that, that when we sin, it, it's not just uh, us plunging into pursuing, you know, sensual desires, which may be true. 
But there's a deeper element of us choosing to sin and choosing to rebel. It's that of us being people made in the image of God and yet choosing consciously, hey, to turn away from God. Right? And become, you know, in some sense, our own God. And so sin, in some sense, in Paul's mind, and for sure in a lot of different passages of Scripture, is the dethroning of God. Man, in some sense, trying to lift itself up and, and, and sit in the place of God. That is what man, you know, Adam and Eve were tempted with in the beginning. As Satan came to them and said, hey, if you eat that fruit from that tree, you're going to become like God. And so that's obviously appealing to man. And so we, we plunge down that. You know, it's just not just Adam and Eve that do that. The reality is it's all of us to do that. When we choose to sin, when we choose to rebel, on some level, whether consciously or subconsciously, we are making a decision of, I know better. Especially if you know the law from the Bible. But Paul says, even if you have that natural law written on your heart, there's a sense of, hey, I know what's about this ungodliness. He also points out here in those seven passages that we just looked at, that, that sin is pervasive. All right, if you look back again at those verses there, uh, 10 all the way to 18, and you may have noticed it as we read it a couple times, you know, Paul mentions a lot of different parts of your, of your body. Right? You know, he talks about, the, you know, no one understands or seeks, right? In some sense, pointing to the mind. Verse 13, the throats are open. Uh, their tongues practice deceit. Uh, the poison vipers on their lips. Their mouths are full of cu- cursing. Uh, the feet are swift to shed blood. Uh, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's, it's all these parts of the body. So what's he telling us about sin there? Is this idea that, that sin is pervasive. Right? It spreads. It's not just contained in a single action. A, a choice, a decision uh, to, to rebel against God, it, it corrupts everything. It corrupts every area of our life. And we may think, oh, it's not having an effect. No, 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 it has effect. That's what the psalmist is trying to say by, by pulling together all these different parts of our body to help us to see, hey, look, sin is pervasive. It spreads. It pollutes. Uh, it corrupts every aspect of us, you know, twisting and tainting, uh, you know, the, 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 creatures that are, the creatures that are made in the image of God, right, and, and distorting us, you know. And, um, again, it's not, it's not that... that, that uh, one group of people is, more, is, is worse than the other group of people. Uh, several times in those seven, seven verses we read, uh, Paul, Paul uses words uh, like no one. All. It's not that one person is better than the other. Again, religious people tend to be notorious for this attitude of one person is better than the other. And this categorizing of people into good people, bad people. The Bible shatters that concept, guys. It shatters it. It destroys that. Right? We've got we to gotta be a people, you know, especially if you're, you are a Christian and you, you claim to follow God, you have to understand that, 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 as we've talked about significantly, the line between good and evil is not in here, out there. It's down the middle of each of our hearts. And mankind does have, in some sense, the, the, the ability to do some good, but there's also great evil with us. And everyone falls under that category. No one is exempt from that. And if you're unsure whether or not you are, I encourage you to read the first three chapters because that's the conclusion. And I think we have touched on this slightly, but you do think about why. Why does Paul spend so much time densely packing logic and and reason and arguments to, 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 in some sense, hit us over our head with the truth he's said all the way back in verse 18 of chapter 1? Why spend so much time doing that? 
Why does he need to? You know, and the answer uh, is, is a pretty basic concept, uh, but it's pride. The problem of pride. All right? Uh, you know, in, in, in chapter 3 here, verses 19 to 20, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be silenced. And the whole world held accountable to God, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You know, and you think about the forcefulness there of those words in, in white. That... that, that, that the fact that we're all under law, as he's proved you know, and said back there in verse 9, why? Why has he gone to great lengths? So that every mouth may be silenced. So that mankind would essentially shut up. Back in chapter 1, he talked about those who don't even believe in God. He says, look, you know, the reality is, even atheists, they're without excuse. God says, look at the world I made. Look at creation itself. That cries out about God's invisible qualities so that men are without excuse because where do excuses come? They come out of our mouth. You know, and then Paul goes on a rant a little bit there in chapter 1 about, about the pagan world and all the sins they indulge in and in chapter 2, what does he say to all of us religious people? Don't, don't think you're without excuse because <laughs> the minute you start condemning those people, the reality is you do the same thing and so you know what? You also need to shut your mouth. Right? And that idea of, of shutting us up, silencing us, is an image of humility, of being humbled, of being brought low. Right? Uh, Trevor and I understand this. We love Premier League, and, and I didn't come and talk to Trevor last week about the Premier League because Man City lost. You know? I know. I'm still, I'm still a little, it's still, it's still wrong. You know? And, and as soon as I see Man City lost, you know, just... I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. I have nothing to say. I'm humbled. Right? And I appreciate Trevor not saying anything, even though Liverpool won, right? Uh, you know, he's such a great guy. Uh, hopefully, they lose, hopefully they lose soon, and, and so Trevor can be more humble. You know, but, but our problem of pride is uh, it, it warrants multiple chapters. Our pride requires that much ink to help us to see that we're lost. Yeah. Most of us don't see it very quickly. If you're married and you have a fight with your spouse and you try to show them uh, the error of their ways, you figure out fairly quickly that people don't see it very quickly. <laughs> right? When you have kids and you try to help your kids to see the error of their ways, you figure out pretty quickly they don't very quickly see the error of their ways. And that's nature. That's mankind. It's not that some are worse than the other. The reality is we all are under that. Right? And, and pride is, man, it's a dangerous, dangerous beast, as we talked about when we went through, through, uh, through, through the book of James earlier this year. You know, but this, the, the, the forcefulness of, of the last sentence there, of no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That, that it should constantly put us in a state of humility. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about righteousness as we've been going through the book of Romans and, and righteousness being that concept uh, of a, 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 you know, the CV of all CVs. A resume spiritually that opens up every door, uh, every avenue, every opportunity, uh, every right thing that needed to be done, you, you, you've done. Uh, every wrong thing you shouldn't, do, shouldn't have done, you don't do. That's that idea of righteousness. And Paul says it, it is impossible for you, yourself, me, myself, 
to be declared righteous. And tragically, billions of people probably, in the world we live in, at the time now, if you ask them, you go into heaven or hell, and they say heaven, and you ask them why, a lot of them say, because I'm a good person. This verse blatantly contradicts that concept. There's no way that you're going to be declared righteous by being a good person. He spent three chapters. But our pride wants to think we're good people. Our pride is an expert at, at minimizing and justifying and coming up with rationalizations and excuses for why we're not as bad as maybe we, you know, other people think we are. But we've got to see, look, we, we, need, to, we need to shut up, in a sense, before God. We should be silenced. You know, and that's why at the conclusion of this next paragraph that we're going to look at down there in verse 27, Paul then says, where then is the boasting? If we really understand the gospel, which is the next paragraph, right? There are verses, uh, you know, 21 all the way down to 26, which a lot of people will say, Leon Morris, famous Australian theologian, he says, you know, it's perhaps the most important paragraph in the entire New Testament. Okay, and it's so important, we're going to read it twice today, thanks to Andrew, right? You know, and, 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 and at the conclusion of that paragraph, which unpacks the gospel, Paul poses a question, where's the boasting? Because the point is, if you actually understand what he's just written, there is no grounds for boasting. And boasting's a very revealing thing, right? What we boast about shows us really what we give, put our confidence in, what we really care about, what we really find our worth in. You know, what we, what we like to highlight and draw attention to, that shows us Really, what we care about in our heart of hearts, understand, understood, really eliminates boasting, vanquishes it from our hearts. Right? Hopefully now you have a greater understanding of the problem of sin, or the power of sin, the problem behind it, which is that of pride. You know, in this understanding that, that sin is not purely uh, doing what's wrong, as C.S. Lewis writes, you know, our pro fallen man, which is all of us, right? Not just the guys, though guys for sure are women as well fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement he is a rebel who must lay down his arms you know, and it's obviously out of C.S. Lewis's great hearts, work and, and our problem is not just we don't measure up though we don't measure up our problem is that that we think we don't need God we think we're good enough on our own in some sense it's time to raise our white flags and surrender amen now some good news, okay? We've had several weeks of bad news as we've gone through these first three chapters. Look here at some incredibly, incredibly good news, right? The power of the sun. And let's read it again, because uh, like I said, it is a pretty important paragraph in the Bible. So starting there at verse 21, it says, but now, right? That but being the biggest but in the New Testament, okay? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made, been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, again, it's important there what Paul's saying, right? Uh, he's saying that the, the righteousness of God, you know, apart from the law. So outside of the law, hey, this has been made known. But the, the law and the prophets also testify, because Paul's point here all along has been Jew, Gentile, they're both in the same boat. Okay, he's again saying here, look, outside of the law, there's evidence. This is it's pointing to Jesus. Even within the law, the prophets, you know, they testify, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that, right? Both from the inside and the outside, uh, there's pointers to this righteousness. In verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God, 
and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Right? A ph phenomenal paragraph that has so many, so many things in it. Right? Uh, and again, this contrast of but. All the verses leading up to, so, but pretty much from chapter 1, verse 18, have been leading up to this point. It's impossible for us to be righteous on our own, but hey, look, there is a way. There is a way. Right? And it's been made known. Now, this next verse is an interesting verse, and Blair and I have had some discussions about this verse as well. You know, if you read the NIV Bible, it says this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Uh, NET translates it this way, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. And I think there's significant evidence that, that shows that that NET uh, passage is probably a better translation, uh, because if you do notice in the NIV translation, uh, belief um, it becomes redundant, said twice in the same sentence. The faithfulness, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in, in, of Jesus Christ. It's not talking about Jesus's faithfulness, his belief in himself, right? But faithfulness in the sense of covenant faithfulness. That that Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah and, and fulfilled what the Jewish people should have done. He fulfilled it. He embodied it. You know, and if you remember back, we went through Matthew. Uh, there's lots of hints of this concept all through Matthew. Uh, you know, that Jesus is leading a new exodus, right? Remember the Mount Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah come and they talk to Jesus about his exodus, right? That he is Israel leading a new exodus, uh, uh, you know, and leading his people. Uh, he goes into the, the, the wilderness in Matthew 4 and he's tempted by Satan, uh, you know, you know and, and for 40 days he faced testing where Israel went in the wilderness and they faced testing and they perished. He was victorious, Right, the new Israel, right? The faithfulness of Jesus. That, that's the, the way to the righteousness, right? Uh, that, 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 that's, what's, that's what's being offered, you know? And um, he, you know, as, as Andrew mentioned, you know, this idea that, that, that a righteousness given by having faith or belief, that's not a new concept, okay? The, the new concept is the object of that faith. Basically, what's your belief in? What's your faith in? Is it in yourself and in your works? Or is it in Jesus? There's, there's ample evidence that we are not faithful. But in Christ, and there's a faithfulness that we could never attain. We could never, never reach, you know, or, or measure up to. Uh, you know, and, and this faithfulness of, of, uh, of Jesus, you know, is, is just, you know, described out in even greater detail in the verses that follow. He says, For there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace. So that's one concept that he's trying to help us understand uh, what Jesus is offering here. Uh, through the redemption, that's the second one, that is in Christ Jesus, uh, God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously so committed these three, right? three images kind of the right because they're pretty powerful images uh you know that that, that that paul's outline here you know the whole section is that of a courtroom right a cosmic courtroom uh where mankind is gathered before its creator right uh and for us to be justified and in the greek uh the, the word for for being justified and the word for righteousness are the same word 
right? So that's why it can be a little bit confusing, especially down at the bottom of that, that, that paragraph, you know, but, but it's this picture of, of you being in a court and, and knowing in some sense you're guilty. And yet the judge turning to you and declaring not just not guilty, but the court rules in your favor, right? I don't know if any of you have ever been to court. I went to court one time when I was uh, uh, 20, 19, 20 years old in America. I, uh, I, uh, I was speeding, and uh, I thought I had a good argument why I was speeding to the point that I paid $100 for a lawyer, and, and I went to court. Uh, and it took the judge like maybe two and a half seconds to say, no, you're guilty, <laughs> pay the fine, and now the court costs as well because you dragged us all into court. And so, you know, a $130 ticket became a lot more expensive uh, because I was hoping to be justified. I was hoping that, that, the, that, the, that the judge would think, yeah, you're right, you just mistook the, the, the speed limit in that neighborhood. They didn't. <laughs> I didn't rule in my favor, you know. But, but to, to understand what, what Paul is saying here is this, this idea that, that, man, one day you're going to stand before God. And, and, and he has a record of everything you've ever done. And, and to, to be in that scenario and to have the judge rule in your favor is an absurd concept. It's a crazy concept, especially considering how much time he's been going through, showing us that we're guilty. But he's saying, hey, but there is a way. And that comes through the faithfulness of Christ. Because in Jewish thought, and especially in Paul's thought, and for sure throughout Christian thought, and one of the key, key things you've got to understand if you want to understand that the gospel is this idea that, 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 uh, of, of the substitutionary nature of Jesus. And when you believe in him, and the Bible talks about that, that, that you know, later on in chapter 4 of Romans, that, that when Abraham believed, it was credited to him as righteousness. And it was this idea that, that, you know, that what we have in the gospel, when we put our faith in, 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 in the faithfulness of Christ, rather than that and of ourselves, that, that that which Christ has done, his faithfulness, is then given over to us. His sinlessness, given over to us, credited to our account. His resistance of every sin, every temptation, his, his decision to always do right in the best way in every opportunity. I mean, you think about it. You read the Gospels and you see how Jesus handles difficult situations. And to think, man, God takes all of that success and all those victories and he says, hey, that's yours. That's credited to your account. That's how the judge is going to see that. That's an incredible thought. Right. The second concept that, that Paul you know, puts before us is that, that by being justified freely by his grace, that, that, that we have redemption. And this power of sin, you know, as John 8 tells us, it enslaves us. Again, we, we in our pride, think, oh, I'm not that bad. I can stop at any time. So says the addict. We can try to, change. We can try to go down a path of, of self-improvement, but the reality is, apart from God, True repentance, repentance on the, in the heart and the mind level that produces a changed life radically is only possible if the Son sets you free. There's a sense that we can't have life, and this runs throughout the gospel, unless we let go. Unless we surrender. It's a Jewish concept, and Paul is in some sense appealing to us to take the Exodus story. That's, that's the, the identifying story for the Jewish people. 
And he says, look, that's actually a picture of us as Christians. But it's not just the Jews being redeemed. It's everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, being set free. If you've been a Christian a while, maybe you're sitting here thinking, I don't know if it feels like freedom. Paul is going to unpack that a bit more in Romans 6 to help us understand this. But there is this idea that, that, that before we're a Christian and we're enslaved by sin, when we sin, we are sinning in accordance, in, in unity with our will. But, but, but if you've been born again, if you've been baptized in the Christ and raised to a new life, when you sin, you're actually going against your will. Because you have been set free. You're no longer enslaved. You no longer have to be controlled by sin anymore. And this idea of freedom is an incredible, incredible concept. Awesome. That we have the freedom to choose to do what's right. This is, I mean, so many passages hinge on this, you know what I mean? I, one of my favorites is, is out of Paul's letters to the, to the church in Corinth, you know, and he tells them, look, and it's also, also one of the misquote, most misquoted passages in, in the course of mankind, uh, you know, mis, people misquote it saying, oh, God's never going to give you more than you can handle. No. Beginning of Corinthians actually says the opposite. Uh, God's going to put you in situations way beyond what you can handle, so do you learn to not trust in yourself, rather, and, and trust in God, right? But, but, but there in... in, in uh, you know, later on in, in chapter 10, Paul will say, look, God's never let you going to let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. We're never going to be so overrun by temptation. Why? Because we've been freed from that. Freed to live a different life. We've been freed from to live a new way of living. You know, we've got to understand, man, I have freedom, and that comes through Jesus. The third and the most cryptic thing that, 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 that the sun accomplishes the for Bible, us here, which is uh, there at the bottom of Jones, <laughs> then you know what I'm talking about, but both are good sources of information on the Ark of the Covenant, right? But, but nonetheless, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant there, those are angels with their wings spread out. But in Jewish thought, that was the mercy seat, right? And that's why the, the NET, which we read earlier, translates uh, there in, in, in verse uh, 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You know, that, that, that sacrifice of atonement is literally uh, the mercy seat. Uh, or this other word that, that's difficult to understand, uh, propitiation. Right? Propitiation. Uh, depending on which Bible translation you're reading, is also some Bibles translate it expiation. Uh, but, but propitiation is, is correct. Mercy seat is correct. But a lot of people don't like the concept of mercy seat, uh, you know, because for the mercy seat on the, on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, which... For, for, if you have Jewish friends, they celebrated that last Sun. week. Uh, October, right? <laughs> Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Now, now back in the day, when, when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness with, with the Ark of the Covenant, the high priest would go in there and he would sprinkle blood once a year uh, from a sacrifice uh, on, on the mercy seat. Now, many people are uncomfortable with that concept. Because that sounds like God is bloodthirsty. Well, there's an element of God, and we're uncomfortable with it. And you know what? That's okay. Just because we're uncomfortable with it doesn't mean it's wrong. But, but if you've been through challenges in life or hardships, you've been wronged, you long for justice, right? And our, and our, and our recoil at this idea that, that God is a God of wrath and this idea, you know, that even some Bible translators get where they'll just translate it expiation, which just means like forgiveness, doesn't mention blood. That, that actually says a lot more about us, right? 
It shows that our lives, you know, have probably actually been a little bit easy. In a vast majority of the world, especially people who have been in, in, in areas of, of uh, immense suffering, war-torn countries, people who have lost everything and lost loved ones to war, to rage, is incredibly reassuring. This idea that God is not just going to overlook it. He's not just taking the magic eraser and erasing it. No, no, there will be justice. He is a God of justice. He's a God that, that demands justice. And very early on, an Israelites beginning to understand God and his ways, you know, all the way back as they wandered around in the wilderness and they are there at Sinai and, and they realize, you know, we're not a special people. We're a bunch of sinners that are a bunch of people who were slaves who have now been set free. But you know what, man, God is holy. God told Pharaoh, let my people go. He didn't let him, he let him let go. There were consequences. There were plagues. And even as God began to tell the Israelites about, about how an unholy people can approach a holy God, one of their main yearly festivals was that of remembering the Day of Atonement. And it was a solemn day of fasting. Even nowadays, Jews uh, will, 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 will go around barefoot. Will, will not, you know, they won't eat. They won't drink. They'll afflict the soul to try to feel this idea of, man, I'm an afflicted person. And nowadays, because they don't have a temple, they'll, they'll pray and they'll ask for forgiveness. But man, back in Jesus' day, when they had a temple, the high priest, he would go in there. And some people say he would go in there with a rope tied up around his ankle because if you put blood in the wrong places, God strikes you down. This idea that the mercy seat is a holy place, again, there's, there's, you know, most people, when they read the Bible, they come across scary passages. One of them is that of the Old Testament and, uh, in, in, uh, you know, the times when the, the, the Israelites had kind of misplaced the Ark of the Covenant, ended up in Philistine territories. Philistines send it back, uh, and it's riding on the back of, of, of a cart, uh, and the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant stumbles because the animal stumbles, and one of the guys reaches out to steady it. And what does God do? He kills him. We're an unholy people. That mercy seat was the and very presence God. of God. And, and you can't just approach that. You can't just approach him. That, 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 that there must be blood shed. There must be atonement. There must be payment made. But, but here, what Paul is taking, he's taking that Jewish concept of the day of atonement, and he's saying, look, you want to know where that mercy seat is? It's not in the Jewish temple. You want to know the place where God's wrath is satisfied and you can find forgiveness through the shedding of the blood. It's not there on the Day of Atonement. It's in Christ. Yeah. And it's in Him alone. Not in yourself. Not in your works. He goes into the, to the, to the temple in heaven that the, that the one here on earth was only uh, a copy of and He offers not the blood of an animal but, but His own blood. And it's a powerful image in this paragraph, guys. As, as Paul weaves these concepts together and, and, and shows us, hey, this wrath of God that we've been unpacking for three chapters that you are under is satisfied in Christ and in him alone to accomplish those things. Knowing what he's accomplished, how, how could we possibly stand there before God and, and try to, to, to have faith in ourselves? It's a foolish, foolish endeavor. He's a man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. This is where Paul has brought us. 
Help us to see that there's nothing in ourselves now or in the past or or never going to be anything in in ourselves, uh, even in the future, that's worthy of us finding rest. Our bank accounts, our achievements, religious knowledge, none of that is worthy of being And paid the price for us. The challenge for all of us is to make a decision. Faith in self or faith in him? There is no middle ground. There is no third option. And we may think, oh, indecision, I don't know. No, no, no. Indecision is a decision. Right? We try to tell ourselves it's not. No, no, it is. Jesus never gives three options. You read the New Testament. There are never three options. Really? People try to choose it? No, no. It's a choice. Put your faith in him or put your faith in yourself. Right? Son, and we'll stand and sing together one, one final song. Father, we... Uh, you know, we thank you so much, God. We, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son. Your law written in, in your word, God. You've also given it to us written on our hearts, God. And Father, we, we know, God, that if, that if we're honest, God, each one of us know that there's something off with us, God. Anxiety and that we don't measure. and pride, Father. We pray, God, that, that we can make decisions here and now, God, to, to trust less in self to look less God, to ourselves, to fix our to eyes on your son, to, to, to put, build our faith, our worth, our life, uh, everything, God, on him, God. And, and to long for that day when, when faith will become sight. And when, when, when Jesus, who is our life in God, you can help us to see that they are lesser things and they're not worthy. I'll stand with, uh, with Trevor and sing, Hallowed Be Thy Name.